welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Monster week, including in district court. Not only was there a semi-favorable Title 42 case out of the D.C. Circuit that I haven't read but have been reading about from those who have, but there was a very complicated decision from the Fifth Circuit on temporary protected status. Duarte et al. v. Mayorkas. Give it a read. In essence, good stuff on jurisdiction, but the divided Fifth Circuit held that TPS holders with final removal orders who exit and re-enter the U.S. with advanced parole are not arriving aliens, such that USCIS has jurisdiction over their adjustment of status application. And according to the Fifth Circuit, advanced parole appears not to even be a parole under immigration law for TPS holders. However, their re-entry with advanced parole necessarily means that they have been, quote, admitted, end quote. Did I make your head spin? Might it therefore nevertheless be a favorable decision for TPS holders that may present grounds to move to reopen their final removal orders and adjust status in immigration court? Well, it's just the intro, and I'm just getting started. Nine cases to go. First up is Ariaga Bravo v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on March 2, 2022. This decision, like that First Circuit decision last week, is about when and how the BIA can overturn an IJ's factual finding. Ms. Ariaga Bravo was from Guatemala, entered the United States without authorization, and applied for asylum and related relief in removal proceedings claiming that she had, quote, fled Guatemala to escape harassment and sexual violence by the Mara 18 gang, end quote. Her 15-year-old sister had been raped, and then her even younger sister was raped by the gang, too. Her family kept moving, but Mara 18 is prevalent in Guatemala. Her friend was raped in another town. And finally, she herself was targeted by Mara 18 members in order to become that member's girlfriend. When she refused, two men grabbed her on the street and put a knife to her throat. So she fled to the U.S. 
the immigration judge, quote, issued a thorough and well-reasoned 24-page decision, end quote. High praise to the IJ, and possibly his or her helpful attorney advisors, possibly in Philadelphia. In the decision, the IJ sympathized, but found the particular social groups of Guatemalan women, young Guatemalan females, and Guatemalan females subjected to gang recruitment who refused such recruitment not cognizable under immigration law. However, the IJ granted protection under the Convention Against Torture, which does not require a nexus to a protected ground. And that was based on the finding that Miss Ariaga Bravo, quote, was vulnerable and would more likely than not be raped or killed in Guatemala, end quote and that the Guatemalan government would more likely than not acquiesce. See, there was some evidence of police not helping the other victims referenced in the very case, and additionally, quote, the IJ noted that while the Guatemalan government has passed a law to combat violence against women, the law is not fully prosecuted, and it did not preclude the finding that the government would still acquiesce to torture, end quote. DHS appealed, and on appeal, the BIA reversed, stating that, quote, while the country conditions report violence against women in Guatemala generally, it was not persuaded that Miss Ariaga Bravo faced a particularized risk of harm, end quote. Therefore, the BIA was, quote, unable to uphold, end quote, the IJ's grant of cat protection. But the BIA can't do that, said the Third Circuit. Remember, dead fish standard of review for factual findings made by an IJ? or as the Third Circuit boringly put it, the BIA must review IJ fact findings for clear error. Quote, if there are two permissible views of the evidence, the fact finder's choice between them cannot be clearly erroneous. End quote. Here, quote, it was not the BIA's role to determine whether it agreed with the IJ's weighing of the evidence in Ms. Ariaga Bravo's favor. End quote. It doesn't matter whether the BIA was, quote, sufficiently persuaded, end quote, or not when it comes to the IJ's findings or conclusions. That's not clear error standard of review. The BIA also erred in its finding regarding whether the Guatemalan government would acquiesce to the torture feared. This is kind of complicated. Under Third Circuit precedent, quote, first the IJ makes a factual finding or findings as to how public officials will likely act in response to the harm the petitioner fears. Next, the IJ assesses whether the likely response from the public officials qualifies as acquiescence under the governing regulations. While the BIA reviews the first part for clear error, it must review the second de novo, end quote. So two different elements there for government acquiescence and two different standards of review for the BIA to apply. In this case, the BIA failed to distinguish between the two elements, and it instead reviewed the entire acquiescence issue de novo. But again, the first part, how the public official will likely act, is a finding of fact, and the BIA needs a very good reason to disagree with the IJ's finding based on the record evidence. So, the Third Circuit remanded. Great case if you're trying to argue standards of review in your favor, and great case with great quotes and statistics for femicide and crimes against women in Guatemala, generally. Congratulations Brett A. Tarver and Anthony C. Vale for Petitioner and to throw the BIA a bone. While the decision doesn't say, if I'm being honest, it seems that what might be happening here is that the BIA is or was treating cat eligibility in total as a mixed question of law and fact that Attorney General Barr told the BIA to review in-depth and de novo in matter of ACAA, discussed on episode 22, and matter of RAF, published even before that. 
Now, matter of ACAA has been vacated by Attorney General Garland, although not necessarily for this specific reason. But RAF is even more on point. It held that whether facts meet the legal definition of torture is a mixed question of law and fact that the BIA reviews de novo, and not under the clearly erroneous standard. It seems that matter of RAF might remain lingering around. So, even if Attorney General Garland agrees with matter of RAF, and even if that case correctly states the law as the Attorney General understands it, it's certainly a landmine for the BIA as it navigates the appropriate standard of review in CAT cases in the Third Circuit and elsewhere. And that is Ariaga Bravo, the Attorney General of the U.S. Next is Rivera Menehivar v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on March 3rd, 2022. This is a short case about asylum and due process. Ms. Rivera Menehivar is from El Salvador and began attending Evangelical Church at 10 years old. She became a youth leader and, with her sister, preached in her community, trying to convince young people not to join the gangs or to leave the gangs. The gangs didn't like this, and threatened the church pastor and Ms. Rivera Menehivar, who fled to the U.S. at 17 years old. She filed for asylum and related relief and removal proceedings, submitting country condition reports and affidavits from her sister and the pastor. The immigration judge heard testimony, reviewed the evidence in, quote, about 45 minutes, end quote, and denied relief and protection. The BIA affirmed. As did the Eighth Circuit. First, everyone, including Ms. Rivera Menehivar herself, agreed that she hadn't actually suffered past persecution. So this case came down to whether she had a well-founded fear of future persecution or torture based on the evidence of record, without any benefit of presumption, at least for withholding purposes there. Here, the Eighth Circuit believed Ms. Rivera Menehivar's affidavits explaining the basis for her fear were, quote, too general to establish a credible fear, end quote. For example, the pastor's letter stated, and I'm sure paraphrasing, that, quote, there have been threats and acts of violence against the youth group, end quote, but not against Ms. Rivera Menehivar specifically. Plus, the Eighth Circuit believed that Ms. Rivera Menehivar's sister was similarly situated. That meant that the fact that the sister apparently lived safely in El Salvador to this day undermined any well-founded fear. As to cat protection, the Eighth Circuit agreed that Ms. Rivera Menehivar's evidence, quote, failed to show that the Salvadoran government is willfully blind to the torture of its citizens, end quote. Concluding with the due process challenge, the fact that the IJ appears to have hastily reviewed and denied the claim, the Eighth Circuit held that the IJ actually considered the very evidence that Ms. Rivera Menehivar argues the IJ overlooked. In any event, the Eighth Circuit held, Ms. Rivera Menehavar couldn't establish the necessary prejudice to succeed on a due process challenge, because based on the entire evidentiary record before it, the Eighth Circuit believes that Ms. Rivera Menehavar should lose her case. So, a tough one about how difficult it can be for asylum seekers, even when deemed credible. And that is Rivera Menehavar v. Garland. Sticking with the Eighth Circuit, we have Salcido Mar v. Garland, published on February 28, 2022. This is a very short case about motions to reopen. 
Ms. Salcido Mar is from Mexico, applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal in immigration court under INA Section 240AB, and did not succeed. The BIA dismissed her appeal in 2018. It appears that as the basis, Ms. Salcido Mar asserted that her two young children would suffer exceptional and extremely unusual hardship in her absence. While the denial of her case was pending on appeal before the BIA, Ms. Salcido Mar gave birth in the U.S. to a third child who, quote, began to develop asthma-like symptoms at age four months and was diagnosed with respiratory syncytial virus, end quote. Ms. Salcido Mar, therefore, filed a motion to reopen and remand essentially asking for another shot at non-LPR cancellation of removal based on the new hardship that her new child would suffer. The BIA denied the motion. Then, shortly after that, Ms. Salcidomar gave birth to a fourth child, and it was quickly discovered that, quote, a section of the child's bowel appeared paralyzed. It is suspected that the child may have Hirschsprung's disease, end quote. Terrible stuff. So another motion to reopen was filed. Same concept. In the second motion, Ms. Salcido Mar appears to recognize that the motion is both untimely because it wasn't filed within 90 days of the final removal order, and numerically barred. It is, after all, motion number two. So, Ms. Salcido Mar requested only that the BIA grant the motion using its inherent authority, that is, its sua sponte authority. The BIA declined to do so. And that's a big problem for Ms. Salcido Mar on petition for review to the Eighth Circuit because it like many if not all circuits, quote, lacks jurisdiction to review the BIA's refusal to sua sponte reopen the proceedings because it is a purely discretionary decision, end quote. Ms. Alcido Mar, therefore, did not win. Like I said, short case. And that is Alcido Mar v. Garland. Next is Silva v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on February 28, 2022. This is our long and complicated case of the episode. It's on INA Section 101A43S, Aggravated Felonies. And get this, although Mr. Silva did not succeed, the arguments were excellent, as Mr. Silva was represented by Carrie E. Doyle, who is currently, as of the date of this decision, the ICE Principal Legal Advisor meaning that she's in charge of all ICE attorneys nationwide. So how does that work? Oil, after all, takes the position that both ICE and EOIR are its clients on petition for review, meaning that technically Miss Doyle, who again, is the only attorney listed as representing Mr. Silva, is on both sides of the V here. What a unique opportunity, Miss Doyle, for you to have instructed your counsel to give a second, third, or dare I say fourth review of petitioner's excellent arguments but I digress. And I kid. Mr. Silva was admitted into the U.S. as a lawful permanent resident in 1989, but in 2017, he pled guilty in Massachusetts to accessory after the fact to the crime of murder, in violation of Mass General Law Chapter 274, Section 4. An immigration judge and then the BIA concluded that the conviction was categorically an aggravated felony because it matched the definition of an offense relating to obstruction of justice, for which the term of imprisonment was at least one year, under INA Section 101A43S. And that made Mr. Silva removable. Now, Mr. Silva was sentenced to at least one year imprisonment, but he challenged the finding that his crime matched the substantive elements of a Section 101A43 aggravated felony. 
Here, two judges on the First Circuit agreed with the BIA, while Judge Barron dissented. Here's why. The inquiry here involves the categorical approach, requiring a comparison of the elements of the federal removal provision, here the aggravated felony definition at INA Section 101A43S, with the Massachusetts accessory after the fact conviction. The first step, therefore, is to figure out what are the elements of Section 101A43S, an offense relating to obstruction of justice. That's no easy task, as the ambiguous statutory title itself indicates. And the issue has been subject to a lot of litigation recently. The BIA last addressed the definition in matter of Valenzuela Gallardo, and then again in matter of Cordero Garcia in 2019. But matter of Valenzuela Gallardo appears to be the more relevant one. In that case, the BIA held that the obstruction of justice aggravated felony definition covers, quote, crimes involving one, an affirmative and intentional attempt, two, that is motivated by a specific intent, Three, to interfere with an investigation or proceeding that is ongoing, pending, or reasonably foreseeable by the defendant, end quote. Now, the Ninth Circuit vacated that decision on direct petition for review in Valenzuela Gallardo v. Barr, discussed on episode 15. But, like the Fourth Circuit in Pugin v. Garland, episode 84, the First Circuit believes that matter of Valenzuela Gallardo is still a decision upon which it potentially owes Chevron deference. I continue not to understand why that is the case if the Ninth Circuit vacated the BIA's decision on direct petition for review. Because again, that's what happened in Valenzuela Gallardo v. Barr. The Ninth Circuit rejected the BIA's definition and vacated the whole decision, including that third element. The Ninth Circuit held that the statute is, quote, unambiguous in requiring an ongoing or pending criminal proceeding, end quote, and not simply a reasonably foreseeable proceeding. In this case here, the First Circuit disagreed, thereby agreeing with the Fourth Circuit in Pugin and disagreeing with the Ninth Circuit in Valenzuela Gallardo v. Barr, and a 2017 Third Circuit decision in Flores v. Attorney General U.S. And in so holding, the First Circuit is given what I'm going to start referring to as zombie chevron deference to a vacated BIA decision. Also, while I'd love to take credit for that term, I'm stealing it a bit from a law review article sent my way by Jeff Hoffman and Mark Barr. Shoutouts. Back to the case and away from the zombies. The First Circuit also believed the BIA correct based on statutory interpretation. So I guess this decision doesn't really rise or fall with matter of Valenzuela Gallardo. The First Circuit's analysis is similar to the Fourth's in Pugin. It looked at how dictionaries defined obstruction of justice in 1996 when the aggravated felony provision was added, and how the federal government, model penal code, and 13 states criminalized it and similar statutes at the time. And those definitions, according to the First Circuit, quote, did not explicitly require that the obstructive conduct be committed in relation to a pending or ongoing investigation or judicial proceeding, end quote. The First Circuit's conclusion is buttressed by the fact that the aggravated felony provision is one, quote, relating to, end quote. And the Supreme Court has held, at least in non-immigration decisions, that the term relating to is a, quote, broad one, end quote. Although, as an aside and a footnote, the First Circuit explains how this is actually in contrast to the Supreme Court's description of what, quote, relating to meant, end quote, in an immigration decision, Malouli v. Lynch. 
The First Circuit distinguished Malouli because the specific provision at issue there using the term relating to, quote, included a cross-reference to another specific statute, further defining the statute of conviction for purposes of removal, end quote. Not the case here with the Section 101A43S definition. It doesn't cross-reference any other statute. All very important, because the Massachusetts criminal statute here appears not to require that the obstructive conduct be committed in relation to a pending or ongoing investigation or judicial proceeding. What does that mean? It means that in the Ninth Circuit, the crime is probably not an aggravated felony. But in the First Circuit here and in the Fourth Circuit, it probably is. Although actually, the First Circuit does alternatively hold that the Massachusetts statute does have a, quote, nexus to an investigation, whether actually pending or in the offing, end quote. Continuing on, quote, indeed, the serious nature of the crimes actually prosecuted under Section 4 supports our holding that the least culpable conduct likely to be charged under the provision includes a fair probability of criminal investigation, end quote. So it appears losses for Mr. Silva on the statute all around. Even if the First Circuit hadn't accepted the BIA's new definition of a Section 101A43S offense in matter of Valenzuela Gallardo. Now, Mr. Silva also applied for asylum and related relief. The aggravated felony finding tanks the asylum application, but he wasn't sentenced to at least five years in prison, so it might not be a particularly serious crime for withholding purposes. The IJ and the BIA held, though, that it was under matter of NAM, and the First Circuit agreed. And that's mostly because Mr. Selva, quote, admitted to knowing that the individuals whom he assisted had committed a murder, end quote. And that's terrible. I'm not going to condone that. Back to the law, though. In the circuits that haven't yet ruled, and at least to reserve the argument because I guess the BIA's zombie ruling governs, argue the Ninth Circuit's Valenzuela Gallardo v. Barr decision or Judge Barron's dissent on INA Section 101A43S. Judge Barron appears to have a vigorous dissent. Do you agree, Ice Principal Legal Advisor Kerry E. Doyle? Should your TAs defer to a zombie decision? Nah, I'm just kidding. You've got to do what you got to do. But what is up with the deference to vacated BIA decisions? I really don't get it. Lots to rely on here for statutory interpretation arguments, and lots of commentary by me throughout, because it's confusing AF. So I'll just end it. And that is Silva v. Garland. Moving on to a trio of Fifth Circuit decisions, we first have Martinez Guevara v. Garland, published on March 3rd, 2022. And really, it's four decisions from the Fifth Circuit this week if you include that TPS one at the top of the episode. This case is about change country condition motions to reopen and exhaustion. Ms. Martinez Guevara is from El Salvador, entered the U.S. without authorization in 2006, and was placed in removal proceedings. She did not appear for a hearing in Harlingen, Texas, and was ordered removed in absentia. In 2019, she filed a motion to reopen, requesting an opportunity to apply for asylum and related relief from removal. She claimed that, quote, since the removal order, gangs in El Salvador have attacked the families of police there, end quote, and that two of her relatives are police officers, putting her at increased risk. She filed personal documents and country condition evidence to prove it, although candidly, the Fifth Circuit doesn't appear overly impressed. The immigration judge denied the motion, and the BIA affirmed. And the Fifth Circuit did too. 
But at least the Fifth Circuit did not hold that Ms. Martinez-Guevara needed to file a motion to reconsider with the BIA before it would review her case. See, Ms. Martinez-Guevara did not claim that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding, a claim that the Fifth Circuit would have ruled that Ms. Martinez-Guevara would have to bring to the BIA to reconsider first. But the Fifth Circuit nevertheless pondered whether all non-citizens who seek to have their cases reviewed in the Fifth Circuit must always file motions to reconsider with the BIA first to exhaust their claims. To state the question appears to me a bit absurd, and the panel did not implement that rule. Citing to its favorable Omari v. Holder decision, the court recognized that, quote, a motion to reconsider is not generally required to exhaust, end quote. Rather, a motion to reconsider is required when the petition for review brings up a new issue, quote, and a new issue is one that neither party could have possibly raised before the BIA's decision, end quote. Simply put, not, quote, every mistake by the BIA calls for a motion to reconsider, end quote. And that even includes claims that the BIA, quote, wrongly weighed the evidence or misapplied the law, end quote. But note, the panel believes claims that the BIA engaged in impermissible fact-finding, applied the wrong standard of review, or violated the non-citizens' due process rights would require a motion to reconsider before petitioning for review. Also, a claim that the BIA ignored evidence might require a motion to reconsider, depending on what the appeal to the BIA argued. Thanks for the clarity here. No sarcasm. Thanks for the clarity. Quote, to classify a claim, we ask whether the BIA had a chance to consider it. The BIA need not actually decide or consider the issue. End quote. Here, the claims were not brand new, so the Fifth Circuit could consider them. But the Fifth Circuit agreed with the BIA. Specifically, the BIA, quote, could and did conclude that the evidence showed too little violence, gang-coordinated or not, to prove a material change in country conditions, end quote, as would be required for Ms. Martinez-Guevara to succeed on her motion to reopen. So she did not succeed. Two very quick things. First, not for nothing, but the IJBIA and Fifth Circuit all adjudicated the change country condition motion to reopen, despite the fact that Ms. Martinez-Guevara was ordered removed in absentia and never actually filed for asylum in her removal proceedings. I believe that there may be a line of cases out there in some circuits precluding a change country condition motion to reopen under such circumstances. Maybe not. Hopefully not. And second, I wonder if Ms. Martinez-Guevara's 2006 notice to appear had the date, time, and location of her first removal hearing, a la Rodriguez v. Garland. Just wondering aloud. And that is Martinez-Guevara v. Garland. Next is Raimundo Morales v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on March 4th, 2022. This is a very, very short case about non-LPR cancellation of removal. But the Fifth Circuit published it, so here we go. Mr. Raimundo Morales is from Guatemala and has lived in the U.S. without authorization for over 22 years. He has a U.S. citizen teenage son who does not live with him. In removal proceedings, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal based on the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship that he asserted his son would suffer without him. The IJ and the BIA denied, and the Fifth Circuit affirmed. See, the son lives two and a half hours away from Mr. Raimundo Morales, 
And while he visits him and sends him money, quote, the judge concluded that the evidence did not show that this hardship was any greater than that regularly faced by families having a member removed, end quote. More to the point for the Fifth Circuit's decision, it held that the IJ applied the correct hardship standard and sufficiently considered all evidence and factors brought by Mr. Raimundo Morales below. This included the, quote, dangerous conditions awaiting Mr. Raimundo Morales in Guatemala, end quote. A fact that, not for nothing, the Fifth Circuit believes should have and was indeed properly considered, even though the evidence also appears to indicate that the son probably wasn't going to be joining Mr. Raimundo Morales in Guatemala. Just saying. Again, short case. And that is Raimundo Morales v. Garland. Did somebody say Fifth Circuit? Concluding with the fifth, we have Gregorio Osorio v. Garland, published on March 4, 2022. Even shorter one about deficient notices to appear. Seriously, it's three pages. To kick it off, first, the Fifth Circuit upheld the denial of Ms. Gregorio Osorio's asylum claim, but it didn't provide any details about it. Ms. Gregorio Osorio, however, also applied for post-conclusion voluntary departure under INA Section 240BB which, if granted, would thereby avoid the inadmissibility bar that follows a removal order, provided that she leaves, of course. The IG believed her ineligible for post-conclusion voluntary departure because she hadn't been in the U.S. for at least a year, quote, preceding the date on which she was served with a notice to appear, end quote, as post-conclusion voluntary departure requires. Ms. Gregorio Osorio's NTA, however, lacked the date, time, and location of her first hearing, as so many NTAs did. Now, the Fifth Circuit didn't actually rule that such a deficient NTA will stop the accrual of continuous physical presence for post-conclusion voluntary departure purposes. If it had, it would have agreed with the Ninth Circuit in Poso Sanchez v. Garland, Episode 63, and the BIA's new position in matter of MFO, Episode 80. But, and probably because of those decisions, Oil requested a remand, so the Fifth Circuit granted a remand. Can't imagine why the Fifth Circuit published this decision but for to have a decision similar to Pozo Sanchez and matter of MFO. So there we go. Something to kind of rely upon in the Fifth Circuit. And that is Gregorio Osario v. Garland. Moving on, we have Toledo Vasquez v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on March 2nd, 2022. This case is about asylum and nexus. Ms. Toledo Vasquez is from Mexico and entered the U.S. in 2002. But she and her husband Francisco would sometimes return to Mexico, where they repeatedly witnessed Ms. Toledo Vasquez's sister Gisela be abused by her husband, Rogelio. Gisello and Rogelio eventually separated, and things got really contentious. Rogelio beat his family and kidnapped the children, and after lots of violence, Rogelio threatened to kill Gisela. He also threatened to kill Miss Toledo Vasquez and her husband Francisco numerous times in Mexico. Miss Toledo Vasquez and her husband even got involved in a custody battle over the children, their nieces and nephews, where Rogelio threatened to kill Miss Toledo Vasquez and her husband Francisco. It got even worse. After losing custody of his kids, Rogelio and his henchmen kidnapped Miss Toledo Vasquez's husband, Francisco, and murdered him. 
Mr. Lito Vasquez's father-in-law began receiving death threats when he pressed police to intervene in the murder of his son. Mr. Lito Vasquez eventually testified against Regalio, leading to his murder conviction for killing Francisco, and then she fled to the U.S. with her family when the phone call threats to her life continued, notwithstanding his conviction. She was caught, placed in removal proceedings, and claimed asylum based on her membership in the particular social group, quote, family members of Gisela Toledo Vasquez, end quote. But the IJ denied and the BIA affirmed, mostly, it seems, on nexus. And the Fourth Circuit also affirmed, finding that even if the particular social group was cognizable, it wasn't one central reason for the persecution suffered and feared. Nexus is a pain. To be one central reason and therefore satisfy nexus, a protected ground, in this case, the membership in the particular social group, quote, must be more than incidental, tangential, superficial, or subordinate to another reason for harm, end quote. In the Fourth Circuit, quote, the ultimate question is why the applicant, and not another person, was persecuted, end quote. Here, in essence, the Fourth Circuit agreed that even if Ms. Toledo Vasquez was part of a cognizable particular social group, and even if she suffered past persecution, quote, the record contains substantial evidence that the central reason for Ms. Toledo Vasquez's persecution included her intervening in Gisela and Rogelio's marriage, aiding her sister in escaping Rogelio, and assisting in Rogelio's capture and imprisonment, end quote. And while all of those reasons to fear death are surely and equally terrifying, and indeed they led to Francisco's murder, it doesn't fit into the round hole that is asylum nexus to a protected ground. For example, quote, Every threat made by Rogelio to Miss Toledo Vasquez came after her attempts to rescue Gisela from Rogelio's abuse, end quote. No harm happened before that, and quote, the timing of threats can be relevant to determining a persecutor's motivation, end quote. And perhaps most undermining of nexus to the family-based particular social group, quote, Regelio treated non-family members who intervened the same way, end quote. The panel distinguished this case from its similar precedent because here, Regelio also targeted non-family members, and because in this case, and unlike past precedent, the persecutor himself, Regelio, is technically a member of the particular social group. Remember, the asserted particular social group is family members of Gisela Toledo Vasquez. In the Fourth Circuit, quote, Asylum does not provide protection from persecution that springs from a personal conflict between family members, end quote. Therefore, end quote, despite the tragic circumstances that caused Ms. Toledo Vasquez to flee Mexico, Substantial evidence supports the BIA's conclusion that she was not persecuted on account of her family relationship to Gisela, end quote. Honestly, not much more to say here other than there is contrary precedent in the Fourth Circuit that this decision itself discusses, so if you have a similar case, make yours more akin to those decisions and not this one. And that is Toledo Vasquez v. Garland. Finally, we come to Garcia Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on March 2, 2022. This is the second of two decisions issued on the same day and written by Judge Quattlebaum. This one, a win for the non-citizen. The petition, Napoleon Garcia Hernandez, is from some country, but the Fourth Circuit didn't say which one. He applied for asylum and related relief in 2018 based on his family membership, but his application was denied. 
Asylum was also denied because the application was filed over one year after his entry into the U.S. However, shortly after losing his case, Mr. Garcia Hernandez moved to reopen his case based on new evidence. Months after losing, his brother was murdered, quote, by the Lopez family, end quote. While the IJ recognized that this indeed was a material change, the IJ held that the only change that matters for motions to reopen is a changed country condition, and that this actually, quote, reflected a long-standing pattern of persecution against Mr. Garcia Hernandez's family, end quote. Plus, the IJ held that to excuse the one-year filing deadline for asylum, the change in circumstances must occur before an asylum application is filed. Ooh, I'm smelling some good law about to be made the BIA affirmed. And good law was indeed made by the Fourth Circuit. Asylum applications must be filed within one year of the non-citizen's arrival, but the time limit can be extended based on, quote, change circumstances which materially affect the applicant's eligibility for asylum, end quote. The Fourth Circuit has held previously that an uptick in attacks or other risks of harm relevant to an asylum application can extend the filing deadline. Quote, even if the petitioner could have been eligible for asylum before the new information, end quote, and even if merely, quote, an intensification of a pre-existing threat, end quote. So honestly, that's already quite the non-citizen-friendly rule for extending the one-year filing deadline. Expanding upon that case law, and doing so quite succinctly, the Fourth Circuit held that the BIA erred in distinguishing past Fourth Circuit precedent simply because, quote, the purported change circumstance took place after the time-barred petition was filed and adjudicated, end quote. Put another way, and while I'd like a bit clearer of a statement, it appears to me that the Fourth Circuit is holding that the one-year filing deadline for asylum can indeed be extended based on materially changed country conditions that arise after an asylum application is filed, while it's pending, or even after it's denied. And if that is what the Fourth Circuit is holding, and I fail to see how it isn't, the decision aligns at a minimum with the Second Circuit's decision in Ordonia's Asman v. Bar, discussed on episode 12 of the podcast. Again, it's another short case, and congratulations Benjamin J. Osario and Alexander Reeb for petitioner. Judge Quattlebaum appears to have taken an interest in asylum during his relatively short time on the bench. And there was more. So the Fourth Circuit actually first held in this decision that the IJ and BIA decided the motion to reopen under the wrong regulation. See, no matter the basis for a motion to reopen, any new, material, and previously unavailable evidence should result in reopening if the motion is filed within 90 days of the final order of removal. Here, Mr. Garcia Hernandez filed his motion within 90 days, so that regulation should have governed. The IJ and the BIA therefore erred by applying a different regulation. And to be fair, that's the regulation that these motions and decisions almost always travel under. The regulation the IJ and the BIA erred by applying has no time limit, is applicable only for asylum cases, and requires presentation of evidence of materially changed country conditions. But that wasn't required here, because again, Mr. Garcia Hernandez filed his motion to reopen within 90 days. Any new and material evidence should have sufficed because it was traveling under the regular motion to reopen regulation. Good to remember. And that is Garcia Hernandez v. Garland. 
So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.